as a work of incredible cleverness in the best two-tiered Disney tradition. The only rub for Jobs was that reviewers such as Maslin wrote of the Disney tradition, not the emergence of Pixar. After reading her review, he decided he had to go on the offensive to raise Pixar's profile. When he and Lassiter went on the Charlie Rose show, Jobs emphasized that Toy Story was a Pixar movie, and he even tried to highlight the historic nature of a new studio being born. Since Snow White was released, every major studio has tried to break into the animation business, and until now, Disney was the only studio that had ever made a feature animated film that was a blockbuster, he told Rose. Pixar has now become the second studio to do that. Jobs made a point of casting Disney as merely the distributor of a Pixar film. He kept saying, We at Pixar are the real thing, and you Disney guys are shit, recalled Michael Eisner. But we were the ones who made Toy Story work. We helped shape the movie, and we pulled together all of our divisions, from our consumer marketers to the Disney Channel, to make it a hit. Jobs came to the conclusion that the fundamental issue whose movie was it, would have to be settled contractually rather than by a war of words. After Toy Story's success, he said, I realized that we needed to cut a new deal with Disney if we were ever to build a studio and not just be a work-for-hire place. But in order to sit down with Disney on an equal basis, Pixar had to bring money to the table. That required a successful IPO. The public offering occurred exactly one week after Toy Story's opening. Jobs had gambled that the movie would be successful, and the risky bet paid off big time. As with the Apple IPO, a celebration was planned at the San Francisco office of the lead underwriter at 7 a.m. when the shares were to go on sale. The plan had originally been for the first shares to be offered at about $14 to be sure they would sell. Jobs insisted on pricing them at $22, which would give the company more money if the offering was a success. It was, beyond even his wildest hopes. It exceeded Netscape as the biggest IPO of the year. In the first half hour, the stock shot up to $45, and trading had to be delayed because there were too many buy orders. It then went up even further to $49, before settling back to close the day at $39. Earlier that year, Jobs had been hoping to find a buyer for Pixar that would let him merely recoup the $50 million he had put in. By the end of the day, the shares he had retained, 80% of the company, were worth more than 20 times that, an astonishing $1.2 billion. That was about five times what he'd made when Apple went public in 1980. But Jobs told John Markoff of the New York Times that the money did not mean much to him. There's no yacht in my future, he said. I've never done this for the money. The successful IPO meant that Pixar would no longer have to be dependent on Disney to finance its movies. That was just the leverage Jobs wanted. Because we could now fund half the cost of our movies, 
I could demand half the profits, he recalled. But more important, I wanted co-branding. These were to be Pixar as well as Disney movies. Jobs flew down to have lunch with Disney CEO Michael Eisner, who was stunned at his audacity. They had a three-picture deal, and Pixar had made only one. Each side had its own nuclear weapons. After an acrimonious split with Eisner, Katzenberg had left Disney and become a co-founder with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen of DreamWorks SKG. If Eisner didn't agree to a new deal with Pixar, Jobs said, then Pixar would go to another studio, such as Katzenberg's, once the three-picture deal was done. In Eisner's hand was the threat that Disney could, if that happened, make its own sequels to Toy Story using Woody and Buzz and all of the characters that Lasseter had created. That would have been like molesting our children, Jobs later recalled. John started crying when he considered that possibility. So they hammered out a new arrangement. Eisner agreed to let Pixar put up half the money for future films and in return take half of the profits. He didn't think we could have many hits, so he thought he was saving himself some money, said Jobs. Ultimately, that was great for us, because Pixar would have ten blockbusters in a row. They also agreed on co-branding, though that took a lot of haggling to define. I took the position that it's a Disney movie, but eventually I relented, Eisner recalled. We start negotiating how big the letters in Disney are going to be, how big is Pixar going to be, just like four-year-olds. But by the beginning of 1997, they had a deal for five films over the course of ten years and even parted as friends, at least for the time being. Eisner was reasonable and fair to me then, Jobs later said, but eventually, over the course of a decade, I came to the conclusion that he was a dark man. In a letter to Pixar shareholders, Jobs explained that winning the right to have equal branding with Disney on all the movies, as well as advertising and toys, was the most important aspect of the deal. We want Pixar to grow into a brand that embodies the same level of trust as the Disney brand, he wrote. But in order for Pixar to earn this trust, consumers must know that Pixar is creating the films. Jobs was known during his career for creating great products, but just as significant was his ability to create great companies with valuable brands, and he created two of the best of his era, Apple and Pixar. Chapter 23 The Second Coming What rough beast, its hour come round at last. Things fall apart. When Jobs unveiled the next computer in 1988, there was a burst of excitement. That fizzled when the computer finally went on sale the following year. Jobs' ability to dazzle, intimidate, and spin the press began to fail him, and there was a series of stories on the company's woes. Next is incompatible with other computers, at a time when the industry is moving toward interchangeable systems, 
Bart Ziegler of Associated Press reported. Because relatively little software exists to run on Next, it has a hard time attracting customers. Next tried to reposition itself as the leader in a new category, personal workstations, for people who wanted the power of a workstation and the friendliness of a personal computer. But those customers were by now buying them from fast-growing Sun Microsystems. Revenues for Next in 1990 were $28 million. Sun made $2.5 billion that year. IBM abandoned its deal to license the Next software, so Jobs was forced to do something against his nature. Despite his ingrained belief that hardware and software should be integrally linked, he agreed in January 1992 to license the Next Step operating system to run on other computers. One surprising defender of Jobs was Jean-Louis Gasset, who had bumped elbows with Jobs when he replaced him at Apple and subsequently been ousted himself. He wrote an article extolling the creativity of Next products. Next might not be Apple, Gasset argued, but Steve is still Steve. A few days later, his wife answered a knock on the door and went running upstairs to tell him that Jobs was standing there. He thanked Gasset for the article and invited him to an event where Intel's Andy Grove would join Jobs in announcing that Next Step would be ported to the IBM Intel platform. I sat next to Steve's father, Paul Jobs, a movingly dignified individual, Gasset recalled. He raised a difficult son, but he was proud and happy to see him on stage with Andy Grove. A year later, Jobs took the inevitable subsequent step. He gave up making the hardware altogether. This was a painful decision just as it had been when he gave up making hardware at Pixar. He cared about all aspects of his products, but the hardware was a particular passion. He was energized by great design, obsessed over manufacturing details, and would spend hours watching his robots make his perfect machines. But now he had to lay off more than half his workforce, sell his beloved factory to Canon, which auctioned off the fancy furniture, and satisfy himself with a company that tried to license an operating system to manufacturers of uninspired machines. By the mid-1990s, Jobs was finding some pleasure in his new family life and his astonishing triumph in the movie business, but he despaired about the personal computer industry. Innovation has virtually ceased he told Gary Wolf of Wired at the end of 1995. Microsoft dominates with very little innovation. Apple lost. The desktop market has entered the dark ages. He was also gloomy in an interview with Tony Perkins and the editors of Red Herring. First, he displayed the bad Steve side of his personality. Soon after Perkins and his colleagues arrived, Jobs slipped out the back door for a walk, and he didn't return for 45 minutes. When the magazine's photographer began taking pictures, he snapped at her sarcastically and made her stop. Perkins later noted manipulation, selfishness, or downright rudeness 
we couldn't figure out the motivation behind his madness. When he finally settled down for the interview, he said that even the advent of the web would do little to stop Microsoft's domination. Windows has won, he said. It beat the Mac, unfortunately. It beat Unix. It beat OS 2. An inferior product won. Apple Falling For a few years after Jobs was ousted, Apple was able to coast comfortably with a high profit margin based on its temporary dominance in desktop publishing. Feeling like a genius back in 1987, John Scully had made a series of proclamations that nowadays sounded embarrassing. Jobs wanted Apple to become a wonderful consumer products company, Scully wrote. This was a lunatic plan. Apple would never be a consumer products company. We couldn't bend reality to all our dreams of changing the world. High tech could not be designed and sold as a consumer product. Jobs was appalled, and he became angry and contemptuous as Scully presided over a steady decline in market share for Apple in the early 1990s. Scully destroyed Apple by bringing in corrupt people and corrupt values, Jobs later lamented. They cared about making money, for themselves mainly, and also for Apple, rather than making great products. He felt that Scully's drive for profits came at the expense of gaining market share. Macintosh lost to Microsoft because Scully insisted on milking all the profits he could get rather than improving the product and making it affordable. As a result, the profits eventually disappeared. It had taken Microsoft a few years to replicate Macintosh's graphical user interface, but by 1990, it had come out with Windows 3.0, which began the company's march to dominance in the desktop market. Windows 95, which was released in 1995, became the most successful operating system ever, and Macintosh sales began to collapse. Microsoft simply ripped off what other people did, Jobs later said. Apple deserved it. After I left, it didn't invent anything new. The Mac hardly improved. It was a sitting duck from Microsoft. His frustration with Apple was evident when he gave a talk to a Stanford Business School club at the home of a student who asked him to sign a Macintosh keyboard. Jobs agreed to do so if he could remove the keys that had been added to the Mac after he left. He pulled out his car keys and pried off the four arrow cursor keys, which he had once banned, as well as the top row of F1, F2, F3 function keys. I'm changing the world, one keyboard at a time, he deadpanned. Then he signed the mutilated keyboard. During his 1995 Christmas vacation in Kona Village, Hawaii, Jobs went walking along the beach with his friend Larry Ellison, the irrepressible Oracle chairman. They discussed making a takeover bid for Apple and restoring Jobs as its head. Ellison said he could line up $3 billion in financing. I will buy Apple. You will get 25% of it right away for being CEO and we can restore it to its past glory. 
but Jobs demurred. I decided I'm not a hostile takeover kind of guy, he explained. If they had asked me to come back, it might have been different. By 1996, Apple's share of the market had fallen to 4% from a high of 16% in the late 1980s. Michael Spindler, the German-born chief of Apple's European operations, who had replaced Scully as CEO in 1993, tried to sell the company to Sun, IBM, and Hewlett-Packard. That failed, and he was ousted in February 1996 and replaced by Gil Emilio, a research engineer who was CEO of National Semiconductor. During his first year, the company lost $1 billion, and the stock price, which had been $70 in 1991, fell to $14, even as the tech bubble was pushing other stocks into the stratosphere. Emilio was not a fan of Jobs. Their first meeting had been in 1994, just after Emilio was elected to the Apple board. Jobs had called him and announced, I want to come over and see you. Emilio invited him over to his office at National Semiconductor, and he later recalled watching through the glass wall of his office as Jobs arrived. He looked rather like a boxer, aggressive and elusively graceful, or like an elegant jungle cat ready to spring at its prey. After a few minutes of pleasantries, far more than Jobs usually engaged in, he abruptly announced the reason for his visit. He wanted Emilio to help him return to Apple as the CEO. There's only one person who can rally the Apple troops, Jobs said, only one person who can straighten out the company. The Macintosh era had passed, Jobs argued, and it was now time for Apple to create something new that was just as innovative. If the Mac is dead, what's going to replace it? Emilio asked. Jobs' reply didn't impress him. Steve didn't seem to have a clear answer, Emilio later said. He seemed to have a set of one-liners. Emilio felt he was witnessing Jobs' reality distortion field and was proud to be immune to it. He shooed Jobs unceremoniously out of his office. By the summer of 1996, Emilio realized that he had a serious problem. Apple was pinning its hopes on creating a new operating system called Copeland, but Emilio had discovered soon after becoming CEO that it was a bloated piece of vaporware that would not solve Apple's needs for better networking and memory protection, nor would it be ready to ship as scheduled in 1997. He publicly promised that he would quickly find an alternative. His problem was that he didn't have one. So Apple needed a partner, one that could make a stable operating system, preferably one that was Unix-like and had an object-oriented application layer. There was one company that could obviously supply such software next, but it would take a while for Apple to focus on it. Apple first homed in on a company that had been started by Jean-Louis Gasset, called B. Gasset began negotiating the sale of B to Apple, but in August 1996, he overplayed his hand at a meeting with Emilio in Hawaii. He said he wanted to bring his 50-person team to Apple 
and he asked for 15% of the company, worth about $500 million. Emilio was stunned. Apple calculated that B was worth about $50 million. After a few offers and counteroffers, Gasset refused to budge from demanding at least $275 million. He thought that Apple had no alternatives. It got back to Emilio that Gasset said, I've got them by the balls, and I'm going to squeeze until it hurts. This did not please Emilio. Apple's chief technology officer, Ellen Hancock, argued for going with Sun's Unix-based Solaris operating system, even though it did not yet have a friendly user interface. Emilio began to favor using, of all things, Microsoft's Windows NT, which he felt could be rejiggered on the surface to look and feel just like a Mac, while being compatible with the wide range of software available to Windows users. Bill Gates, eager to make a deal, began personally calling Emilio. There was, of course, one other option. Two years earlier, Macworld magazine columnist and former Apple software evangelist Guy Kawasaki had published a parody press release joking that Apple was buying Next and making Jobs its CEO. In the spoof, Mike Markula asked Jobs, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling Unix with a sugar coating or change the world? Jobs responded, Because I'm now a father, I needed a steadier source of income. The release noted that, because of his experience at Next, he is expected to bring a newfound sense of humility back to Apple. It also quoted Bill Gates as saying there would now be more innovations from jobs that Microsoft could copy. Everything in the press release was meant as a joke, of course, but reality has an odd habit of catching up with satire. Slouching Toward Cupertino Does anyone know Steve well enough to call him on this? Emilio asked his staff. Because his encounter with Jobs two years earlier had ended badly, Emilio didn't want to make the call himself. But as it turned out, he didn't need to. Apple was already getting incoming pings from Next. A mid-level product marketer at Next, Garrett Rice, had simply picked up the phone and, without consulting Jobs, called Ellen Hancock to see if she might be interested in taking a look at its software she sent someone to meet with him. By Thanksgiving of 1996, the two companies had begun mid-level talks, and Jobs picked up the phone to call Emilio directly. I'm on my way to Japan, but I'll be back in a week, and I'd like to see you as soon as I return, he said. Don't make any decision until we can get together. Emilio, despite his earlier experience with Jobs, was thrilled to hear from him, and entranced by the possibility of working with him. For me, the phone call with Steve was like inhaling the flavors of a great bottle of vintage wine, he recalled. He gave his assurance he would make no deal with B or anyone else before they got together. For Jobs, the contest against B was both professional and personal. Next was failing, 
and the prospect of being bought by Apple was a tantalizing lifeline. In addition, Jobs held grudges, sometimes passionately, and Gasset was near the top of his list, despite the fact that they had seemed to reconcile when Jobs was at next. Gasset is one of the few people in my life I would say is truly horrible, Jobs later insisted unfairly. He knifed me in the back in 1985. To Scully's credit, he had at least been gentlemanly enough to knife Jobs in the front. On December 2, 1996, Steve Jobs set foot on Apple's Cupertino campus for the first time since his ouster 11 years earlier. In the executive conference room, he met Emilio and Hancock to make the pitch for next. Once again, he was scribbling on the whiteboard there, this time giving his lecture about the four waves of computer systems that had culminated, at least in his telling, with the launch of Next. He was at his most seductive, despite the fact that he was speaking to two people he didn't respect. He was particularly adroit at feigning modesty. It's probably a totally crazy idea, he said, but if they found it appealing, I'll structure any kind of deal you want. License the software, sell you the company, whatever. He was, in fact, eager to sell everything, and he pushed that approach. When you take a close look, you'll decide you want more than my software, he told them. You'll want to buy the whole company and take all the people. A few weeks later, Jobs and his family went to Hawaii for Christmas vacation. Larry Ellison was also there, as he had been the year before. You know, Larry, I think I've found a way for me to get back into Apple and get control of it without you having to buy it, Jobs said as they walked along the shore. Ellison recalled, he explained his strategy, which was getting Apple to buy next, then he would go on the board and be one step away from being CEO. Ellison thought that Jobs was missing a key point. But Steve, there's one thing I don't understand, he said. If we don't buy the company, how can we make any money? It was a reminder of how different their desires were. Jobs put his hand on Ellison's left shoulder, pulled him so close that their noses almost touched, and said, Larry, this is why it's really important that I'm your friend. You don't need any more money. Ellison recalled that his own answer was almost a whine. Well, I may not need the money, but why should some fund manager at Fidelity get the money? Why should someone else get it? Why shouldn't it be us? I think if I went back to Apple and I didn't own any of Apple, and you didn't own any of Apple, I'd have the moral high ground, Jobs replied. Steve, that's really expensive real estate, this moral high ground, said Ellison. Look, Steve, you're my best friend, and Apple is your company. I'll do whatever you want. Although Jobs later said that he was not plotting to take over Apple at the time, Ellison thought it was inevitable. Anyone who spent more than a half hour with Emilio would realize that he couldn't do anything but self-destruct, he later said. The Big Bake Off Between Next and B 
was held at the Garden Court Hotel in Palo Alto on December 10 in front of Emilio, Hancock, and six other Apple executives. Next went first, with Avi Tavanian demonstrating the software while Jobs displayed his hypnotizing salesmanship. They showed how the software could play four video clips on the screen at once, create multimedia, and link to the Internet. Steve's sales pitch on the next operating system was dazzling, according to Emilio. He praised the virtues and strengths as though he were describing a performance of Olivier as Macbeth. Gasset came in afterward, but he acted as if he had the deal in his hand. He provided no new presentation. He simply said that the Apple team knew the capabilities of the BOS and asked if they had any further questions. It was a short session. While Gasset was presenting, Jobs and Tavanian walked the streets of Palo Alto. After a while, they bumped into one of the Apple executives who had been at the meetings. You're going to win this, he told them. Tavanian later said that this was no surprise. We had better technology. We had a solution that was complete, and we had Steve. Emilio knew that bringing Jobs back into the fold would be a double-edged sword, but the same was true of bringing Gasset back. Larry Tesler, one of the Macintosh veterans from the old days, recommended to Emilio that he choose next, but added, whatever company you choose, you'll get someone who will take your job away, Steve or Jean-Louis. Emilio opted for Jobs. He called Jobs to say that he planned to propose to the Apple board that he be authorized to negotiate a purchase of Next. Would he like to be at the meeting? Jobs said he would. When he walked in, there was an emotional moment when he saw Mike Markula. They had not spoken since Markula, once his mentor and father figure, had sided with Scully there back in 1985. Jobs walked over and shook his hand. Jobs invited Emilio to come to his house in Palo Alto so they could negotiate in a friendly setting. When Emilio arrived in his classic 1973 Mercedes, Jobs was impressed. He liked the car. In the kitchen, which had finally been renovated, Jobs put a kettle on for tea, and then they sat at the wooden table in front of the open hearth pizza oven. The financial part of the negotiations went smoothly. Jobs was eager not to make Gasset's mistake of overreaching. He suggested that Apple pay $12 a share for Next. That would amount to about $500 million. Emilio said that was too high. He countered with $10 a share, or just over $400 million. Unlike B, Next had an actual product, real revenues, and a great team, but Jobs was nevertheless pleasantly surprised at that counteroffer. He accepted immediately. One sticking point was that Jobs wanted his payout to be in cash. Emilio insisted that he needed to have skin in the game and take the payout in stock that he would agree to hold for at least a year. Jobs resisted. Finally, they compromised. Jobs would take $120 million in cash and $37 million in stock, 
and he pledged to hold the stock for at least six months. As usual, Jobs wanted to have some of their conversation while taking a walk. While they ambled around Palo Alto, he made a pitch to be put on Apple's board. Emilio tried to deflect it, saying there was too much history to do something like that too quickly. Gil, that really hurts, Jobs said. This was my company. I've been left out since that horrible day with Scully. Emilio said he understood, but he was not sure what the board would want. When he was about to begin his negotiations with Jobs, he had made a mental note to move ahead with logic as my drill sergeant and sidestep the charisma. But during the walk, he, like so many others, was caught in Jobs's force field. I was hooked in by Steve's energy and enthusiasm, he recalled. After circling the long blocks a couple of times, they returned to the house just as Laureen and the kids were arriving home. They all celebrated the easy negotiations, then Emilio rode off in his Mercedes. He made me feel like a lifelong friend, Emilio recalled. Jobs indeed had a way of doing that. Later, after Jobs had engineered his ouster, Emilio would look back on Jobs's friendliness that day and note wistfully, as I would painfully discover, it was merely one facet of an extremely complex personality. After informing Gassy that Apple was buying next, Emilio had what turned out to be an even more uncomfortable task, telling Bill Gates. He went into orbit, Emilio recalled. Gates found it ridiculous, but perhaps not surprising, that Jobs had pulled off this coup. Do you really think Steve Jobs has anything there? Gates asked Emilio. I know his technology. It's nothing but a warmed-over Unix, and you'll never be able to make it work on your machines. Gates, like Jobs, had a way of working himself up, and he did so now. Don't you understand that Steve doesn't know anything about technology? He's just a super salesman. I can't believe you're making such a stupid decision. He doesn't know anything about engineering, and 99% of what he says and thinks is wrong. What the hell are you buying that garbage for? Years later, when I raised it with him, Gates did not recall being that upset. The purchase of Next, he argued, did not really give Apple a new operating system. Emilio paid a lot for Next, and let's be frank, the Next OS was never really used. Instead, the purchase ended up bringing in Avi Tavanian, who could help the existing Apple operating system evolve so that it eventually incorporated the kernel of the Next technology. Gates knew that the deal was destined to bring Jobs back to power. But that was a twist of fate, he said. What they ended up buying was a guy who most people would not have predicted would be a great CEO, because he didn't have much experience at it, but he was a brilliant guy with great design taste and great engineering taste. He suppressed his craziness enough to get himself appointed interim CEO. Despite what both Ellison and Gates believed, Jobs had deeply conflicted feelings about whether he wanted to return to an active role at Apple 
at least while Emilio was there. A few days before the next purchase was due to be announced, Emilio asked Jobs to rejoin Apple full-time and take charge of operating system development. Jobs, however, kept deflecting Emilio's request. Finally, on the day that he was scheduled to make the big announcement, Emilio called Jobs in. He needed an answer. Steve, do you just want to take your money and leave? Emilio asked. It's okay if that's what you want. Jobs did not answer. He just stared. Do you want to be on the payroll? An advisor? Again, Jobs stayed silent. Emilio went out and grabbed Jobs's lawyer, Larry Sonsini, and asked what he thought Jobs wanted. Beats me, Sonsini said. So Emilio went back behind closed doors with Jobs and gave it one more try. Steve, what's on your mind? What are you feeling? Please, I need a decision now. I didn't get any sleep last night, Jobs replied. Why? What's the problem? I was thinking about all the things that need to be done, and about the deal we're making, and it's all running together for me. I'm really tired now and not thinking clearly. I just don't want to be asked any more questions. Emilio said that wasn't possible. He needed to say something. Finally, Jobs answered, Look, if you have to tell them something, just say, Advisor to the Chairman. And that is what Emilio did. The announcement was made that evening, December 20th, 1996, in front of 250 cheering employees at Apple headquarters. Emilio did as Jobs had requested and described his new role as merely that of a part-time advisor. Instead of appearing from the wings of the stage, Jobs walked in from the rear of the auditorium and ambled down the aisle. Emilio had told the gathering that Jobs would be too tired to say anything, but by then he had been energized by the applause. I'm very excited, Jobs said. I'm looking forward to get to Reno some old colleagues. Louise Kehoe of the Financial Times came up to the stage afterward and asked Jobs, sounding almost accusatory, whether he was going to end up taking over Apple. Oh no, Louise, he said. There are a lot of other things going on in my life now. I have a family. I am involved at Pixar. My time is limited, but I hope I can share some ideas. The next day, Jobs drove to Pixar. He had fallen increasingly in love with the place, and he wanted to let the crew there know he was still going to be president and deeply involved but the Pixar people were happy to see him go back to Apple part-time. A little less of Jobs' focus would be a good thing. He was useful when there were big negotiations, but he could be dangerous when he had too much time on his hands. When he arrived at Pixar that day, he went to Lassiter's office and explained that even just being an advisor at Apple would take up a lot of his time. He said he wanted Lassiter's blessing. I keep thinking about all the time away from my family this will cause, and the time away from the other family at Pixar, Jobs said. But the only reason I want to do it is that the world will be a better place with Apple in it. Lassiter smiled gently. 
You have my blessing, he said. Chapter 24 The Restoration The loser now will be later to win. Hovering Backstage It's rare that you see an artist in his thirties or forties able to really contribute something amazing, Jobs declared as he was about to turn thirty. That held true for Jobs in his thirties, during the decade that began with his ouster from Apple in 1985. But after turning forty in 1995, he flourished. Toy Story was released that year, and the following year, Apple's purchase of Next offered him re-entry into the company he had founded. In returning to Apple, Jobs would show that even people over 40 could be great innovators. Having transformed personal computers in his 20s, he would now help to do the same for music players, the recording industry's business model, mobile phones, apps, tablet computers, books, and journalism. He had told Larry Ellison that his return strategy was to sell next to Apple, get appointed to the board, and be there ready when CEO Gil Emilio stumbled. Ellison may have been baffled when Jobs insisted that he was not motivated by money, but it was partly true. He had neither Ellison's conspicuous consumption needs, nor Gates's philanthropic impulses, nor the competitive urge to see how high on the Forbes list he could get. Instead, his ego needs and personal drives led him to seek fulfillment by creating a legacy that would awe people. A dual legacy, actually, building innovative products and building a lasting company. He wanted to be in the pantheon with, indeed, a notch above people like Edwin Land, Bill Hewlett, and David Packard. And the best way to achieve all this was to return to Apple and reclaim his kingdom. And yet, when the cup of power neared his lips, he became strangely hesitant, reluctant, perhaps coy. He returned to Apple officially in January 1997 as a part-time advisor, as he had told Emilio he would. He began to assert himself in some personnel areas, especially in protecting his people who had made the transition from next. But in most other ways, he was unusually passive. The decision not to ask him to join the board offended him, and he felt demeaned by the suggestion that he run the company's operating system division. Emilio was thus able to create a situation in which Jobs was both inside the tent and outside the tent, which was not a prescription for tranquility. Jobs later recalled, Gil didn't want me around, and I thought he was a bozo. I knew that before I sold him the company. I thought I was just going to be trotted out now and then for events like Macworld, mainly for show. That was fine, because I was working at Pixar. I rented an office in downtown Palo Alto, where I could work a few days a week, and I drove up to Pixar for one or two days. It was a nice life. I could slow down, spend time with my family. Jobs was, in fact, trotted out for Macworld right at the beginning of January, and this reaffirmed his opinion that Emilio was a bozo.
close to 4,000 of the faithful fought for seats in the ballroom of the San Francisco Marriott to hear Emilio's keynote address. He was introduced by the actor Jeff Goldblum. I play an expert in chaos theory in the Lost World Jurassic Park, he said. I figure that will qualify me to speak at an Apple event. He then turned it over to Emilio, who came on stage wearing a flashy sports jacket and a banded collar shirt buttoned tight at the neck, looking like a Vegas comic, the Wall Street Journal reporter Jim Carlton noted, or in the words of the technology writer Michael Malone, looking exactly like your newly divorced uncle on his first date. The bigger problem was that Emilio had gone on vacation, gotten into a nasty tussle with his speechwriters, and refused to rehearse. When Jobs arrived backstage, he was upset by the chaos, and he seethed as Emilio stood on the podium, bumbling through a disjointed and endless presentation. Emilio was unfamiliar with the talking points that popped up on his teleprompter, and soon was trying to wing his presentation. Repeatedly, he lost his train of thought. After more than an hour, the audience was aghast. There were a few welcome breaks, such as when he brought out the singer Peter Gabriel to demonstrate a new music program. He also pointed out Muhammad Ali in the first row. The champ was supposed to come on stage to promote a website about Parkinson's disease, but Emilio never invited him up or explained why he was there. Emilio rambled for more than two hours before he finally called on stage the person everyone was waiting to cheer. Jobs, exuding confidence, style, and sheer magnetism, was the antithesis of the fumbling Emilio as he strode on stage, Carlton wrote. The return of Elvis would not have provoked a bigger sensation. The crowd jumped to its feet and gave him a raucous ovation for more than a minute. The wilderness decade was over. Finally, Jobs waved for silence and cut to the heart of the challenge. We've got to get the spark back, he said. The Mac didn't progress much in ten years, so Windows caught up. So we have to come up with an OS that's even better. Jobs's pep talk could have been a redeeming finale to Emilio's frightening performance. Unfortunately, Emilio came back on stage and resumed his ramblings for another hour. Finally, more than three hours after the show began, Emilio brought it to a close by calling Jobs back on stage and then, in a surprise, bringing up Steve Wozniak as well. Again, there was pandemonium but Jobs was clearly annoyed. He avoided engaging in a triumphant trio scene, arms in the air. Instead, he slowly edged off stage. He ruthlessly ruined the closing moment I had planned, Emilio later complained. His own feelings were more important than good press for Apple. It was only seven days into the new year for Apple, and already it was clear that the center would not hold. Jobs immediately put people he trusted into the top ranks at Apple. I wanted to make sure the really good people who came in from next didn't get knifed in the back by the less competent people who were then in senior jobs at Apple, he recalled. 
Ellen Hancock, who had favored choosing Sun Solaris over next, was on the top of his bozo list, especially when she continued to want to use the kernel of Solaris in the new Apple operating system. In response to a reporter's question about the role Jobs would play in making that decision, she answered curtly, none. She was wrong. Jobs's first move was to make sure that two of his friends from Next took over her duties. To head software engineering, he tapped his buddy Avi Tavanian. To run the hardware side, he called on John Rubenstein, who had done the same at Next back when it had a hardware division. Rubenstein was vacationing on the Isle of Skye when Jobs called him. Apple needs some help, he said. Do you want to come aboard? Rubenstein did. He got back in time to attend Macworld and see Emilio bomb on stage. Things were worse than he expected. He and Tavanian would exchange glances at meetings as if they had stumbled into an insane asylum with people making deluded assertions while Emilio sat at the end of the table in a seeming stupor. Jobs did not come into the office regularly, but he was on the phone to Emilio often. Once he had succeeded in making sure that Tavanian, Rubenstein, and others he trusted were given top positions, he turned his focus onto the sprawling product line. One of his pet peeves was Newton, the handheld personal digital assistant that boasted handwriting recognition capability. It was not quite as bad as the jokes in Doonesbury comic strip made it seem, but Jobs hated it. He disdained the idea of having a stylus or pen for writing on a screen. God gave us ten styluses, he would say, waving his fingers. Let's not invent another. In addition, he viewed Newton as John Scully's one major innovation, his pet project. That alone doomed it in Jobs' eyes. You ought to kill Newton, he told Emilio one day by phone. It was a suggestion out of the blue, and Emilio pushed back. What do you mean, kill it, he said. Steve, do you have any idea how expensive that would be? Shut it down, write it off, get rid of it, said Jobs. It doesn't matter what it costs. People will cheer you if you got rid of it. I've looked into Newton, and it's going to be a moneymaker, Emilio declared. I don't support getting rid of it. By May, however, he announced plans to spin off the Newton division, the beginning of its year-long stutter-step march to the grave. Tavanian and Rubenstein would come by Jobs' house to keep him informed, and soon much of Silicon Valley knew that Jobs was quietly wresting power from Emilio. It was not so much a Machiavellian power play as it was Jobs being Jobs. Wanting control was ingrained in his nature. Louise Kehoe, the Financial Times reporter who had foreseen this when she questioned Jobs and Emilio at the December announcement, was the first with the story. Mr. Jobs has become the power behind the throne, she reported at the end of February. He is said to be directing decisions on which parts of Apple's operations should be cut. Mr. Jobs has urged a number of former Apple colleagues to return to the company, hinting strongly that he plans to take charge, they said.
According to one of Mr. Jobs's confidants, he has decided that Mr. Emilio and his appointees are unlikely to succeed in reviving Apple, and he is intent upon replacing them to ensure the survival of his company. That month, Emilio had to face the annual stockholders' meeting and explain why the results for the final quarter of 1996 showed a 30% plummet in sales from the year before. Shareholders lined up at the microphones to vent their anger. Emilio was clueless about how poorly he handled the meeting. The presentation was regarded as one of the best I had ever given, he later wrote. But Ed Woolard, the former CEO of DuPont, who is now the chair of the Apple board, Markola had been demoted to vice chair, was appalled. This is a disaster, his wife whispered to him in the midst of the session. Woolard agreed. Gil came dressed real cool, but he looked and sounded silly, he recalled. He couldn't answer the questions, didn't know what he was talking about, and didn't inspire any confidence. Willard picked up the phone and called Jobs, whom he'd never met. The pretext was to invite him to Delaware to speak to DuPont executives. Jobs declined, but as Willard recalled, the request was a ruse in order to talk to him about Gill. He steered the phone call in that direction and asked Jobs point-blank what his impression of Emilio was. Woolard remembers Jobs being somewhat circumspect, saying that Emilio was not in the right job. Jobs recalled being more blunt. I thought to myself, I either tell him the truth, that Gill is a bozo, or I lie by omission. He's on the board of Apple. I have a duty to tell him what I think. On the other hand, if I tell him, he will tell Gill in which case Gill will never listen to me again, and he'll fuck the people I brought into Apple. All of this took place in my head in less than thirty seconds. I finally decided that I owed this guy the truth. I cared deeply about Apple, so I just let him have it. I said this guy is the worst CEO I've ever seen. I think if you needed a license to be a CEO, he wouldn't get one. When I hung up the phone, I thought, I probably just did a really stupid thing. That spring, Larry Ellison saw Emilio at a party and introduced him to the technology journalist Gina Smith, who asked how Apple was doing. You know, Gina, Apple is like a ship, Emilio answered. That ship is loaded with treasure, but there's a hole in the ship, and my job is to get everyone to row in the same direction. Smith looked perplexed and asked, Yeah, but what about the hole? From then on, Ellison and Jobs joked about the parable of the ship. When Larry relayed this story to me, we were in this sushi place, and I literally fell off my chair laughing, Jobs recalled. He was just such a buffoon, and he took himself so seriously. He insisted that everyone call him Dr. Emilio. That's always a warning sign. Brent Schlender, Fortune's well-sourced technology reporter, knew Jobs and was familiar with his thinking, and in March he came out with a story detailing the mess. 
Apple Computer, Silicon Valley's paragon of dysfunctional management and fumbled techno dreams, is back in crisis mode, scrambling lugubriously in slow motion to deal with imploding sales, a floundering technology strategy, and a hemorrhaging brand name, he wrote. To the Machiavellian eye, it looks as if Jobs, despite the lure of Hollywood, Lately, he has been overseeing Pixar, maker of Toy Story and other computer-animated films, might be scheming to take over Apple. Once again, Ellison publicly floated the idea of doing a hostile takeover and installing his best friend Jobs as CEO. Steve's the only one who can save Apple, he told reporters. I'm ready to help the minute he says the word. Like the third time the boy cried wolf, Ellison's latest takeover musings didn't get much notice, so later in the month he told Dan Gilmore of the San Jose Mercury News that he was forming an investor group to raise $1 billion to buy a majority stake at Apple. The company's market value was about $2.3 billion. The day the story came out, Apple stock shot up 11% in heavy trading. To add to the frivolity, Ellison set up an email address, saveapple at us.oracle.com, asking the general public to vote on whether he should go ahead with it. Jobs was somewhat amused by Ellison's self-appointed role. Larry brings this up now and then, he told a reporter. I try to explain my role at Apple is to be an advisor. Emilio, however, was livid. He called Ellison to dress him down, but Ellison wouldn't take the call. So Emilio called Jobs, whose response was equivocal, but also partly genuine. I really don't understand what is going on, he told Emilio. I think all this is crazy. Then he added a reassurance that was not at all genuine. You and I have a good relationship. Jobs could have ended the speculation by releasing a statement rejecting Ellison's idea, but much to Emilio's annoyance, he didn't. He remained aloof, which served both his interests and his nature. By then the press had turned against Emilio. Business Week ran a cover asking, Is Apple mincemeat? Red Herring ran an editorial headlined, Gil Emilio, please resign and Wired ran a cover that showed the Apple logo crucified as a sacred heart with a crown of thorns and the headline, Pray. Mike Barnacle of the Boston Globe, railing against years of Apple mismanagement, wrote, How can these nitwits still draw a paycheck when they took the only computer that didn't frighten people and turned it into the technological equivalent of the 1997 Red Sox bullpen? When Jobs and Emilio had signed the contract in February, Jobs began hopping around exuberantly and declared, You and I need to go out and have a great bottle of wine to celebrate. Emilio offered to bring wine from his cellar and suggested that they invite their wives. It took until June before they settled on a date, and despite the rising tensions, they were able to have a good time. The food and wine were as mismatched as the diners. Emilio brought a bottle of 1964 Cheval Blanc and a Montrachet that each cost around $300.
Jobs chose a vegetarian restaurant in Redwood City, where the food bill totaled $72. Emilio's wife remarked afterward, He's such a charmer, and his wife is too. Jobs could seduce and charm people at will, and he liked to do so. People such as Emilio and Scully allowed themselves to believe that because Jobs was charming them, it meant that he liked and respected them. It was an impression that he sometimes fostered by dishing out insincere flattery to those hungry for it. But Jobs could be charming to people he hated just as easily as he could be insulting to people he liked. Emilio didn't see this because, like Scully, he was so eager for Jobs' affection. Indeed, the words he used to describe his yearning for a good relationship with Jobs are almost the same as those used by Scully. When I was wrestling with a problem, I would walk through the issue with him, Emilio recalled. Nine times out of ten, we would agree. Somehow he willed himself to believe that Jobs really respected him. I was in awe over the way Steve's mind approached problems and had the feeling we were building a mutually trusting relationship. Emilio's disillusionment came a few days after their dinner. During their negotiations, he had insisted that Jobs hold the apple stock he got for at least six months and preferably longer. That six months ended in June. When a block of 1.5 million shares was sold, Emilio called Jobs. I'm telling people that the shares sold were not yours, he said. Remember, you and I had an understanding that you wouldn't sell any without advising us first. That's right, Jobs replied. Emilio took that response to mean that Jobs had not sold his shares, and he issued a statement saying so. But when the next SEC filing came out, it revealed that Jobs had indeed sold the shares. Damn it, Steve, I asked you point blank about these shares, and you denied it was you. Jobs told Emilio that he had sold in a fit of depression about where Apple was going, and he didn't want to admit it because he was a little embarrassed. When I asked him about it years later, he simply said, I didn't feel I needed to tell Gil. Why did Jobs mislead Emilio about selling the shares? One reason is simple. Jobs sometimes avoided the truth. Helmut Sonnenfeld once said of Henry Kissinger, He lies not because it's in his interest. He lies because it's in his nature. It was in Jobs's nature to mislead or be secretive when he felt it was warranted. But he could also indulge in being brutally honest at times, telling the truths that most of us sugarcoat or suppress. Both the dissembling and the truth-telling were simply different aspects of his Nietzschean attitude that ordinary rules didn't apply to him.